This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. I know many of you have questions that you ask each and every week, and you're always hoping for them to get picked. If you did not know, I have a Patreon account where every month at the $20 tier and above, I answer your questions in a live stream. And if you're in the other tiers, $50 and above, you get another live stream where I answer questions. So if you have a burning question that you want answered, you can hop over there. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. There are also other rewards and things that you can look at. There's a bunch of different tiers to find a tier that works for you and your budget. Okay, today we have, let's see, looks like we have seven questions. Some of them have quite a few follow-ups, so let's just dig right in. And question number one says, Katie, how do you deal with quote-unquote content in between therapy appointments, please? I know some techniques, but this time the therapy's opened a can of worms tightly closed for years, and it's all coming out randomly in between sessions, flashbacks, hypervigilance, insomnia, etc., this is a great question. And unfortunately, I don't think all therapists do this, and we aren't really trained necessarily to do it. But it's really important when we start working in the trauma space with a patient to build up what we call resources or coping skills or ways to soothe and ground during essentially the process that's to come. Meaning before we even get into anything, we should work on those coping skills and those resources so that when things get hard like this, we have tools and techniques and things that we can utilize because we've already practiced them and we know that they work. Now, you said, the person who asked this question said, I know some techniques. And that's when like a big red flag went up for me where I was like, oh, your therapist didn't solidify coping skills for you. And now it's overwhelming. And so my encouragement to you is to tell your therapist, hey, I'm struggling in between sessions. I'm having flashbacks, hypervigilance. I can't sleep, you know, blah, blah, blah. However, It might be showing up in other things too, like it's making it hard for me to participate at work or school or my relationships, right? It can affect us a lot. And so let them know that you're struggling with this because the goal is to, again, have these tools in our tool belt or resources or supports we can lean on when things get hard and when, you know, when it brings back all these things that we never used to struggle with before. Because the thing about doing trauma work, unfortunately, is that the beginning it kind of gets worse before it gets better. I mean, this is the case for a lot of different mental illnesses, like especially eating disorder treatment, for example. Um, when we first start working on it, it's a, it's so hard at first. It's almost like 
the first few steps you take when you're trying something new, right? If I'm going to learn to paint those first few classes or lessons, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Jeez. And it's really hard, right? And it's no different in therapy. When we first start talking about something, first start working on something, it's really difficult. And we can struggle to see, you know, ways to navigate if it's going to get better. How do we cope with what we feel, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's my encouragement. Tell your therapist, tell them that you need more ways to cope because this is becoming overwhelming. But in the for now, some things that you can do, first of all, the best thing and what I work on my with my patients with first, and maybe it's the DBT therapist in me, but I have them start being more mindful of their emotional regulation or emotional fullness, meaning I'm going to want you to try to get to know yourself enough to know what's your baseline. What's your like, today's not very stressful. I feel pretty much okay. Everything's a, you know, quote unquote, fine. What's that like? Okay. And then I want to know if you're dipping below that into kind of depression or when you're rising above, when you're starting to feel dysregulated, like the hypervigilance and kind of that flight, the fight, flight, freeze kind of response. I want to know when that's being triggered and how quickly it ratchets up. And getting to know ourselves in that way allows us to be more aware so that then we can use the coping skills in time. Does that make sense? Because if we wait to use our coping skills or resources until we're like full-blown panic attack, flashback, hypervigilant, we're not, there, nothing's going to help us. We're like past that point. Do you know what I mean? Um, if we're too far into it, we have to just ride the wave out, unfortunately. But if we can kind of get to know ourselves, then we can implement some things. And some of those things that I usually have my patients start out with are things like journaling out what we feel if we need a process-based one depends on what we're going through. We might need to journal out some of those things because the thoughts feel like they're swirling, right? Maybe we're starting to feel too dysregulated, like the flashback land. I usually have my patients distract, use a distraction-based coping skill. Now, this could be everything from calling a friend, going for a walk, to changing the temperature, like jumping in a cold shower, dunking our face in cold water. We could do those full body shakes to kind of get rid of that energy that's coursing through us to fight, flight, freeze, right? That's energy queued up in our system to ready us to take action to protect ourselves. We got to get that out. Um, And so I might have you do something like that. Those are the first things I would start. And some might work, some will not. It's okay. It's trial and error. Now I have a video from years and years ago called the 25 coping skills. Check that video out. There's also tons of them in the comments down below. And have like, write it down either in notes on your phone or actually on put pen to paper both the coping skills that are distraction-based and the ones that are process-based. Like journaling will be a process-based and like going for a walk will be distraction, okay? And write down some that just sound like they might work for you. And then let's just mark them out, try them out until we have, my goal would be to have at least five that you can turn to and make sure at least two to three of those are things you can do no matter what time it is. Because we all know it usually is the worst at night when we can't call people, when we can't like go walking outside. I mean, I guess you could if you live in a safe area, it's no one around, but I just, you know, for safety's sake, let's not do that. Um, We want to make sure there are things that we can do in the middle of the night too. So hang in there. I know it's hard. Like I said, it gets harder before it gets better. But if we get those coping skills and those resources on board, I have there's no reason there, I have no reason to believe that we can't get through this and feel okay during the process. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Now, this question says, if someone has trust issues and shame issues originating from an avoidant personality type, 
Do you have any suggestions on how they can get into psychotherapy to overcome these issues, given that these issues make it almost impossible to seek out or open up to a therapist? It's a bit of a catch-22. I agree. Now, my avoidant, if you actually have avoidant personality disorder, they said avoidant personality type, I could say it'd be more like attachment style probably, but avoidant personality disorder, people who act, who prefer to be alone, meaning it feels better for them to be alone, not out of like being around people stresses me or I feel anxious when I'm around other people. That'd be more like social anxiety. The avoidant personality disorder is more like, you know, it doesn't, it's not bothersome at all. I'm not missing anything. I'm also not avoiding anything. It's almost like I'm just better off on my own. It's kind of like we just prefer to be alone. I know that's hard to grasp for some people and people will be like, I have avoidant personality disorder. And I'm like, that's a trauma response. So you kind of have to weed out other things before you diagnose AVPD. Okay, just putting that out there. But for people who have that kind of avoidant type of attachment, or maybe you have avoidant personality disorder, my honestly, my advice is to start therapy and go slow. Now, I know that's like taking a lot of things into consideration, thinking that you have the time and the money to do that. But there's a lot of low cost options these days, not only through like BetterHelp, I have it linked in the description. Always you get a discount if you use my code. Um, But there's also, you know, free groups online and low cost clinics in almost every city out there. Like I said, I worked at one called the Center for Individual Family Counseling in North Hollywood. People paid nothing. Uh, Some people paid 20 bucks a session. You know, obviously people could pay the full amount, which I think was like 80 or 100, but I had nobody that paid that amount, by the way. Um, And so there are ways to get the treatment that we need at a cost that works with our budget. Um, Just got to be creative sometimes. So anyways, with that, like, let's pretend that that's okay and we can go in. I would just encourage you to do some consultations, meaning go in and meet with therapists not sure if we're going to make another appointment with them or if we like them just to see maybe there's our phone calls we make or little you know skype sessions or zooms to see if how um sorry something in my eyeball how well we connect with them how well we feel like they get us or hear us it's kind of like a, a test run we can do that up front to make sure that we like our therapist and it's a good fit then we can try to make an appointment and just take our time. I, I think the belief that we're going to go into therapy and be able to dump our whole life and talk openly and not have any reservations is is just not true. Obviously, there are certain people that can do that. Like I'm one of them. I'm definitely like a, a verbal diarrhea therapy person. But for every one of me, there's a ton of other people who are like, I don't want to talk about anything. I don't even know what to say. And, you know, that's where the therapist comes in. That's where we ask questions that are uh not just yes or no. We try to dig into certain things. We take a a thorough history of what you've been through and what you're, you know, where you come from, all of that stuff. So I guess my my suggestion would be to do those consultations so that we can get a feel for people. It's going to be uncomfortable anyway. We might not like them. We might still not find ourselves making a second appointment, but there's no other real way for us to to start that process. Now, a, an easier maybe, I don't know, it depends, depends on your personality. Because some of my patients say groups are like, absolutely not, would never, don't want to, ugh, right? Others think it's easier because you don't have to talk every time. So, you know, the hopeforrecovery.org, they have some great free groups online. There might be groups in your area you could join. That's a way to kind of 
passively see what therapy's like, see what that therapist that's running the group is like. That's another way in. Um, but I feel like those consultations will give you an idea of what the therapist is kind of like and help you decide. So you don't feel like you have to sit for the whole session or make another appointment. You can say, I'll get back to you. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much for your time. I'll get back to you. That's your response. Um, yeah. And then just knowing, I mean, if you can find a, an attachment-based therapist or trauma-informed therapist, I think they'd be very good at helping you cope with this and helping you process and work through it. Um, but the most important thing in therapy is the relationship that we have with our therapist. So I want to make sure that you feel that connection. You feel like they get you. At the very least, you don't feel like you want to run away. Okay? And just start there. One thing at a time, right? Little by little. Now, there was a comment on this as a follow-up. I also have I also have trust issues and I do go to therapy, but I'm always thinking that my therapist is mad at me or that he hates me or will abandon me. And this makes me so, so sad and angry and nervous. We have to bring this up to our therapist because the truth is this has nothing to do with your therapist and everything to do with you. And I don't mean that as like a finger pointing judgmental thing. I mean to say that this probably shows up for you in a lot of areas in your life. And because your therapist is someone that you turn to and you get support from, we've maybe let them in, that can trigger a lot of what I call like our defense mechanisms or us, us puffer fishing and cause us to want to stick our spines out, right? Protect. And that's why you get angry, um, you know, and you're nervous and it's just it's causing these defense mechanisms to shoot out. And so letting them know that this is happening is going to be key to because oh, so here's the process so it's going to be key to your healing because what i would do if i was your therapist is i would i would love it for you to tell me that this is going on and you're experiencing this and then i would want to figure out these what triggers it the most are there certain things i've said or done that make this worse or last longer or more intensive or what i want to know about that maybe you don't know then I want you to keep track of when it comes up and I want you to jot down some thoughts you have about it because what my goal would be is to help you acknowledge when this is happening and then we have to have some coping skills for you to help you manage and get through. Coping skills like um, could be just distraction because it could be our emotion mind running the show and we kind of need to just do something else for a little bit. It could be checking the facts. We might need to see, do we have any reason to believe that our therapist is mad at us? Have they told us? Have there been any actions directly that have let us know they're mad? Hmm. What are these facts that we're building this on? Are they just thoughts? Thoughts are not facts, right? So I would I would have you, my goal would be to have you utilize some of these tools to help you manage these symptoms when they come up. And yes, I know it's difficult and it's not going to make it go away right away, but letting your therapist know so they can help you work on it is going to be key. Because like I said, this has nothing to do with therapy. This is just uh, giving us an example or, or, you know, triggering something that's affecting us in our life in other ways. We just maybe haven't noticed it yet because maybe we like just push away from those people or maybe we're the type of friend that's like, are you mad at me? Really? I'm so sorry. Are you sure you're not mad at me? We just ask over and over until people get agitated and then they are mad. You know, I don't know, but it's not just happening in therapy, which is why it's important to bring it up so you can work on it there so that it doesn't affect other parts of your life. Now, the final add-on says, how do you build trust with an anxious attachment? Is there a way around inner child work because it doesn't really work for me? Yes. I mean, kind of like I said at the beginning, it's slow and steady. I think the the building trust with anxious attachment is going to, you're going to have to, if inner child work doesn't really, it doesn't work for you, um, we're going to have to figure out what, what our particular triggers are, 
okay? So I know you said you have anxious attachment. Is this, because the thing that's interesting is when we have attachment issues, it doesn't affect every one of our relationships. It only affects relationships where there is attachment present, right? So a lot of times I have my patients explain to me how it's different with this colleague they work with that they know casually, like, why is that not so upsetting? And what's different with this person? And it usually goes, we go into something to the effect of like, they know more about me, or I care more about them and want them to know more about, you know, and I kind of want to know the dynamics of what, how your anxious attachment shows up for you and at what depth in a relationship does it present itself. And from there, well, I guess this is therapy work. So I guess it's how do you build trust with, sorry, I think I got off topic there because you're wanting to build trust, especially with an anxious attachment. And it's going to be self-soothing. We're going to have to have some tools like the check the facts, the cold water on our face, some grounding techniques. Um, playing it out can help. That's a CBT technique where you like, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? I want you to play those out in detail. We have to use some of these tools to kind of ma like manage that defense that comes up, that anxious attachment that affects us. We're going to have to use that to calm us so that we can slowly, very slowly sometimes, get to know people, allow them to get to know us slowly and manage that upset as it arises. Because what we're going to have to do is when we have a poor attachment, it happened in childhood, and we have to prove to our brain that the relationships that we're in now one at a time, person by person, that they're not as dangerous or harmful as the ones from our past. And in order to do that, we have to unfortunately like kind of expose ourselves to it, but we have to have tools to help calm us down, to ground us, to keep us present, all that stuff. And so it's little by little, it's like a little step forward, calm down, another step forward, I do a body shake, check in with myself, you know, little by little navigate relationships it's best to do it with a therapist, but I know that it's in and of itself can be tricky. But like I said at the beginning, those consultations can sometimes help with that too. Okay, I hope that helps because inner child work, unfortunately, you know, doesn't work for everybody. Just like any therapeutic tool, it's not one size fits all. So it's okay that that doesn't work. There are other ways around it. Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. I grew up in what I always considered to be a perfectly normal home. We were all well-behaved and never complained about anything because basically we had our needs met. Only recently while in therapy, I realized that we never talked about emotions or emotional needs. I realized that much of my difficulty dealing with or even identifying my emotions today is due to the neglect to address them during my childhood. I'm worried because I believe shamefully that I did the same with my own children and caused emotional damage, which they are now dealing with. My older kids are now young adults, and I've recently learned that they're having trouble with emotion dysregulation and coping with life's, life's challenges. I realize it's probably too late to change that for them by now, and I feel terribly guilty. I'm trying to be different with my younger kids who are 13 and 9, but it's so unnatural to me, and I'm having such a hard time. I try to listen to them and be available and supportive when they're upset or need, um, or need to share something emotional, but then I get so exhausted and I need to isolate sometimes for hours in order to unwind and get back on track. I feel I'm neglecting my children emotionally because that's the way that I grew up, and I can't seem to be able to break the cycle. Being in therapy made me more aware of my faults, but changing them seems to be a long process. And meanwhile, I'm afraid my kids are going to grow up um, in an emotionally neglectful environment. Is there any chance to change this? How do I deal with all the guilt? 
How can I be emotionally available without struggling so much? Why is this so difficult for me? Okay, so much to talk about here. And first of all, thank you for admitting that you have your own issues and that it has, you know, affected your children and that you're trying to be better. Uh, Honestly, I think a lot of us would admit that just having our parents admit that things weren't perfect and that they are going to try to be better is a huge, huge I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it's a huge thing, a huge important piece to probably their healing. So my first word of encouragement for you is to share this with your children, to be honest about your own struggles, to say, hey, you know, when I was growing up, just like you told me, when I was growing up, I thought everything was perfect and I thought everything was fine and, you know, all of our needs are met. We never really complained. We were like well-behaving children. I'd be like, but now I realize that like, we never talked about emotions or emotional needs. And so I'm very uncomfortable with them. Or, and I'm putting words in your mouth now, but you just explain it the way that you feel it. But like, you know, I um, I don't feel comfortable with emotion myself. I'm not sure what I'm feeling or how I'm feeling. I, I know that I didn't, didn't know how to show up for you. You know, just be honest about your process. I think sometimes as parents, we think that we have to have all these answers and we have to know how to fix something. When in reality, Children most likely just need us to show up and be honest. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let them know, older and younger, all your kids, let them know that you're struggling with this and that you were trying to make it better. And then hear them out. And I think the reason this might be exhausting for you, it's two parts. You could be more introverted, meaning that this emotional expression is like, oh, like drains your battery and wipes you out. But also it's a muscle. So that's from one side. Also, I think this is a muscle you've never worked. So it's not strong. It can't withstand a huge workout. So when you start expressing emotion, this little muscle is like, eh, eh, it's doing the best it can and it gets fatigued. And so you get fatigued and you have to like recharge. And I would let your children know about this. Be like, I'm trying, but you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. So sometimes it's exhausting. And that has nothing to do with you or the way that we interact. It's me learning. And you can even say, it's like I'm building a new muscle and this muscle just does, it's weak. It's going to take time. And I know that you want to fix things for your kids. And I know you wish you could go back in time and like change the way that you're going to be. But the We can only work on today and moving forward and speaking up with them, sharing with them this difficulty, this struggle, the guilt, the fact that you hate that this is happening and you're trying your best, but it's unnatural. And, you know, share some of that. I know, you know, older generations, we've always thought that like parents need to like have it all together and we know better. And do I just, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Like we have all those old adages that aren't really 
helpful and aren't really healthy. And I want you to break through those norms. Those are behaviors that you can enact today that can change not only your children's life, but your life. And that is allowing them to see your journey along with you, to be part of it, to to understand that you're human too and you're doing the best that you can. Um, and I think they'll appreciate that and that will allow them then to share their own struggles or to talk about the fact that, yeah, you know, this is how maybe then they can open the vein of conversation where they could say, hey, you know how you could show up for me? You could do this or that or this other thing. Then you have actionable items. When you have the energy to do so and you're able to do this, you, they've already told you. Then you can do those things. And those are incredibly healing behaviors and situations and experiences that you can offer to your children. So it's okay for things to be unnatural. It's okay to be exhausted. We just have to talk about it. And I know that that in and of itself is a huge change in behavior. So be patient with yourself as you try it. But even just reading some of the stuff from your question and saying it to your kids, I think could be incredibly healing. Okay. Now, um, I think that's the chance to change this and dealing with all the guilt. Unfortunately, I feel like being a parent sometimes comes along with its own level of guilt. But as you're honest with them and you get this positive feedback, I believe that that will slowly fade away. Because guilt truly, like if you look in the definition of guilt, it's like, uh, I want to say it's like a feeling of wrongdoing, something like that. I'm probably misremembering it, but it's something to that effect that we've done something wrong. Therefore, we feel guilty about it, right? It's because you've seen your children struggle that you're feeling, you know, um, guilty because you're like, I did something. But if we're working to make it better and we hear from them, that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Or, oh, you were able to show up for me in the way that I needed or oh, this makes me feel good because I thought I was losing my mind. We're going to get some of that positive feedback and possibly some negative feedback, but we're going to get some of that. And I believe that that will slowly assuage that guilt. Okay. Now there was an ad on it said, what can we do for our older children when we realize these things? Same thing. Communicate. I'll even be honest in my own family. There have been conversations that I've had with my mom probably in the last like 20 years. So after I was grown, so I was 19, that'd be 20 years ago, right? It, as an adult, there have been these conversations I've had with my mom where I was able to see her perspective, able to learn something about her history, which I know sounds silly, but we don't spend, or I never spent a lot of time learning about how my mom was raised and what her family was like. Even my father, like my dad and his family, I was really close to that side of my family, but I don't think I realized the the way that, that affected my dad. My dad was super emotional and his parents in particular raised super poor, um, bootstrapped, made made the most out of their life. Like my my papa had a dirt floor growing up and, you know, built and owned his own home in like 30 something acres. You know, it was but it was like survival. That was that's the type of people that they were. Had not, emotions did not have a place. And since my dad was super emotional, he never felt like he could express it because that's not what men do, right? That was like the the message I think he received. So not to get too into like their specific history, but once you kind of have, once you're able to have these conversations with your parents, I think there's this new level of understanding that can come about where you see them as not so much a parent, like on a pedestal, but as a fellow human in the world. And maybe it's me being able to accept that, but I truly believe that clear and honest communication with our children is the path to healing. And since they're adults, they're older, you can have real conversations. I encourage you to not talk down to them, to not think that they don't understand, to share honestly what you've been through, what you've recognized, 
own up and apologize for the the things that didn't go well. I realized that I was doing this because that's the way I was raised and that's not helpful for you. I'm sorry I passed that on to you. We can own up to that. And I believe that when we have those real conversations, real communications, then they can stop seeing us as like a parent maybe who let them down or this pedestal of a person and start seeing us as a fellow human and be able to relate and then be able to heal. A lot of that was healing from for me to hear from my dad and my mom and the way that they interacted and, and then kind of why I turned out to be the way that I am. And it also like allowed me to kind of accept that that was their past and their present, but that didn't have to be my future. And I had the chance and the opportunity to decide to act differently. And yes, it's hard. Like I've been, you guys know I was in therapy like forever. It feels like like every week for, I don't know, since I was 15. And then the last like probably four or five years, I haven't been in therapy, but I'm getting back in. It's a lot of work. But I really think that that those communications, those conversations, the real honest and apologetic conversations is where the healing can take place. And yes, I know it's really hard to own up to our own faults and to admit it and to say sorry. But I think it's healing not only for us to say it, but also for our children to receive it. Okay? Hang in there. Honestly, I also just have to say, like, to know that there are parents out there who are doing their best, who are communicating, who are trying to be better, that makes me feel good. I think for most of viewers in my community and patients I've had over the years, so many people are just hoping that a parent will apologize, will show up, will communicate, because that would make all the difference. So know that just trying makes all the difference. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question said, would a therapist not tell you if you have BPD, otherwise known as borderline personality disorder? I really connect with the BPD research that I see. And I recently had the courage to ask my therapist if we are landing on a diagnosis of any kind after three months. We've been working on fear of abandonment, black and white thinking, self-compassion, etc. She said that some diagnoses can hurt to know and others can be helpful, like OCD. She also ended by saying that I am in crisis mode and that when people are in that state, it's irresponsible to diagnose because everything is heightened and we don't have a baseline. Okay. What would be a diagnosis that the therapist would be cautious to voice? Thoughts? Hope you all are doing well. This is an interesting question. I have a lot of thoughts about it, okay? Now, um, BPD can, since it's so stigmatized, it can be hard for people to want to get the diagnosis to manage the judgment they might feel when they receive that diagnosis it can be really difficult for some people so a lot of therapists are cautious to talk about it also i believe it should take a while to diagnose um three months it seems a little fast for me for a bpd diagnosis i might tell a patient you know i'm seeing some of these symptoms and some of this lines up i like to see a patient before diagnosing a personality disorder at least six months ideally i like to see people for a year before i feel like i can solidly say that they have this because there's a lot of times you're like weeding things out even my patients with bipolar disorder can go through like summertime for some reason tends to be when my patients will go through bouts of mania I don't know if it's the extra sunlight or the energy of summer or I don't know what it is, but I'd want to see that to make sure that this emotion dysregulation I'm seeing isn't bipolar disorder. It's in fact BPD. I'd also want to make sure that it doesn't have its, you know, hooks in just not just trauma to downplay, but in trauma and not correlated with other symptoms of BPD. You know, there'd be some things I want to see, some scenarios that we might want to 
have play out as we navigate our life. Um, and so I usually take my time with a diagnosis like BPD, but I would talk with my patient along the path to it so that they feel like they're with me as we are detectives about our symptoms, right? I don't want to throw down a diagnosis unless a patient comes in with one, in, in which case then I usually go through it with them and say, this is what was in your file. Do you agree or disagree? Has anyone talked to you about this? Because I find that people don't always talk to people meaning therapists and mental health professionals don't always talk to their patients about their diagnosis. And I just don't think that's right. And so that's when I would start out the gate to talk about something. Now, I think when it comes to bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, yeah, maybe I don't think OCD would be one that I would hold off on. I feel like those are probably the two that come to mind right away. And anything psych like with psychosis, meaning depression with psychosis, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, that I'd be cautious to voice also. And I'd want to um, do some testing and assessment. And I'd want to see them for a longer period of time, as long as they're not in crisis, obviously. Um, those are the things I'd be cautious to name right away because of the stigma associated with it. And because sometimes they take longer to make sure you have the right one. Now, preliminarily, you can put down you know, a diagnosis while you try to figure out and kind of weed out the ones that don't fit, right? So if you came in and I thought maybe it was BPD, I put down BPD at the question mark, I might put down depression, I might put down non-suicidal self-injury question mark, I might want to rule out some anxiety symptoms or trauma, complex PTSD, right? I'd have all these things, we call it differential diagnosis, I'd have all these diagnoses that I think could fit for you. And then I'd slowly through our sessions, talk about them and weed them out. Okay, I don't think it's this. I don't think it's that. And I might not talk you through all the possible ones that I think it could be at the beginning. But as I get down to like the final three or four, I'd probably bring it up with you and talk you through why I think something might fit and what do you think and have this honest conversation. Okay, so that's that's maybe why your therapist is not sharing this right away. It sounds like they will in some at some point point in time, hopefully. But the fact that she thinks that you're in crisis mode, I understand this, that she's afraid if she tells you that it is BPD, you'll have an emotional reaction and you're already in crisis. And we don't want to push you into potential, you know, suicide attempts or other harmful behaviors or make the crisis worse in general. And so she might just be waiting until we kind of get ourselves out of this crisis and then she would tell you. But keep asking, keep talking. It's your diagnosis. You have every right to know what it is and to question it, etc. I think that might be why she's a little cautious. Okay. Now there was a comment on this said, as an add-on, after my first hospitalization, I left with a BPD diagnosis. They never told me about it or did an assessment. And I only found out months later when going through my notes with my new psychiatrist. I don't relate to BPD symptoms, so I don't believe that I have it. I did an assessment with a new psychiatrist, but I never got told the results. I've asked a few times and he just said, labels aren't important. What are your thoughts on this? Oof, that, I hate that. Okay. Um, first of all, hospitalizations, not to say that they aren't correct with their diagnosis or diagnoses, I guess, if there's more that they offer, but it's usually when we're in crisis, we need stabilization. I believe hospitalizations can over-medicate, it can be traumatizing, and I don't always trust their diagnosis in general, period, okay? I always want to do my own assessments. I want to spend more time with you because when you're in the hospital, I know people are like, but you're there 24-7. They don't spend a lot of time with you. I worked in one for years. We have these groups that barely run together because you have people who 
or having a severe depressive episode mixed with people who are floridly psychotic and someone who's in a manic episode, it they you cannot put all those people in the same group and expect it to be effective. As a therapist, it's like it's it's like herding cats. It's really difficult. And so I don't like it and I would not accept it personally at face value. Doesn't mean it's always incorrect. No. It just means that I would always want to do my own assessment with you, talk you through it, and let you know what, what I'm thinking. Again, just like I said before, I'd talk you through the potential uh, diagnoses I'm thinking, seeing, and then we'll weed it out. Now, the fact that you're like, I don't relate to those symptoms is important for me to know. If I was your therapist, I'd be like, well, tell me why then. What do you think is more in line with what you're experiencing or what symptoms don't line up? Because that's important. You know you best. I only know what you bring into our sessions and what you tell me about. And But together, we can reach a proper diagnosis. Now, the labels are not important. Pisses me off because one, I mean, one, I can see what they mean, okay? Labels, do they, they help with diagnosing, they help with treating, and they help with inter- insurance coverage. But they don't, they aren't necessary, right? But it's still, it's yours. And it'd be like a doctor giving you a cancer diagnosis and never telling you. And I know you're like, Katie, that's really extreme. No, it's the same fucking thing. It's your body. It's your experience. It's your diagnosis. And you have every right to know it. Whether or not your doctor thinks, quote unquote, labels aren't important, it's yours. And if you want to know it and want to be aware of it so you can do your own research and you can maybe read a book and better understand it, watch some videos to see if you think it lines up. Like you, it's yours to have so that you can look into it and you can assess at your own pace. I don't really care what they think. If they don't think labels are important, awesome, then don't get them from your doctor. But you're my doctor and I would like to have them. And not that I expect, I don't want you to be rude, but I think it's fair when they say labels aren't important, say, well, they are to me because I'd like to be able to read books and I'd like to be able to do some research and better understand what it is I'm going through. And I'd even say, you know, um, I left a hospitalization with a BPD diagnosis. I never thought that fit, but no one ever told me about it. And it bothers me to not know what it is you think I'm struggling with. I'd like to be part of this conversation. I think that's fair. That really bothers me. Again, I just, it's yours. If they think that you have something, you have a right to know and you have a right to question it. You have a right to be part of the process. So push back on that if you can in a way that feels genuine and authentic to you. Again, there's no need to be rude. I don't think they mean it in a harmful way, but I personally find it harmful because to keep it in this a secret I feel like only adds to the stigma of mental illnesses and only leaves us more in the dark about what we can do about it. And I want you to feel empowered. I want you to feel like if I have this diagnosis, I can do something. I can research. I can understand it. You know, I want you to feel that way. So anyways, keep me posted, okay? And this final one says, as another add-on, a couple of years ago, I was an IOP and I later, an IOP stands for intensive outpatient program, okay? These are like day programs. You go for a few days a week, anywhere from like three to six days a week for a few hours each day. I later found out by looking at insurance ICD codes that I had a cluster B personality disorder. Okay, that'd be in the BPD space. They never told me, but I suspect that they meant BPD. Why would they not say it to my face that I had a cluster B personality disorder and only write it in the notes? Ever since then, I felt conflicted as to whether or not I actually have a personality disorder. I can never stay in therapy long enough to receive a diagnosis of BPD because I always dump my therapist around two to three months in. But I almost want a BPD diagnosis as I feel like it would explain why I struggle so much. Is this normal? The dumping therapist two to three months and I'm very curious about. My BPD patients do one of two things. They dump me right away 
like this person two to three months in, or they want to stay forever and ever and ever and never stop. Um, and it's kind of that black and white, all or nothing, almost that splitting behavior too. I'd be curious if you dump your therapist because you're like, they had to reschedule an appointment and they're going to leave. And then we just run, we cut and run. I, I'm very curious about that. Um, now, I feel like I've kind of said what I would say about this, that sometimes they worry about our the stigma associated with it. But by not talking about it, they just only increase the stigma. So it's almost like they could probably feel like they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. But again, it's your diagnosis. And I feel like you should have known and you should be part of it. But I understand the want for a diagnosis. Again, the power of it, if if it's important to us, a lot of times it can be really validating and it can also explain. It's like having a word to explain something that we that we don't have any other word to, to, to share. Does that make sense? It's like, I don't have any other way to tell you what's going on, but that word could explain it. And then it's it feels so, it's not just validating. It's almost like it can be calming and affirming and so necessary in our healing process for many people. And so I understand your want to have that so that it would help explain why you're struggling. It might not be, might not be BPD, but it could also be, you know, it could be. And I think it's very normal to want to know what it is and to be able to have an explanation or a word to describe what's going on. That's, that's why I think it's important that we always tell our patients what diagnosis we're considering and what we've given them. It seems crazy to me that people still try to keep it a secret. So frustrating. I'm sorry that you're going through that, but that is normal. Nothing weird. You're doing the best you can. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, within the past year, I've been dealing with eating disorder behaviors. I don't know if it would count as an eating disorder as what happens is that I'll spend a few months heavily restricting. And then when external things calm down, such as exams, which really negatively impact my mental health to the point where I was suicidal, I'll quickly, quote unquote, recover. I can eat normally again, but in the back of my mind, I'm waiting for things to get bad again so that I can relapse. I end up feeling like I'll never be sick enough to get help since I'm not currently restricting now. And like I'll be stuck in this loop of fake recovery and relapse forever. What should I do? This is definitely an eating disorder. Um, eating disorders are coping skills. So of course it comes and goes as you feel overwhelmed. When you have, you know, tests and stress and it's going to go on for the rest of your life, by the way. Unfortunately, having a stress-free life, I don't, unless we just like completely unplug, I don't know how we do that. Um, if I figure that out, you'll be the first to know. But um please reach out and speak up. You don't have to be quote unquote sick enough for help. I, I get so frustrated with the way that our brains and our society have kind of defined this quote, this need for help. We all need help. Seeing a therapist should be something that we all do. It would really benefit so many of us, right? It's so helpful. And we don't have to be at a certain level in order to receive care because you're using food as a way to cope with how you feel. It's helping you manage your, your, like declining mental health and suicidal thoughts. And that's why it comes along at that time. And then when the stressors are lifted, we kind of, our eating disorder urges and behaviors lift as well. It makes sense. That just to me is very much an eating disorder. And so I would encourage you to reach out to a therapist and start talking to someone. We don't have, they don't necessarily have to be an eating disorder specialist. It'd be great if they were, but we at least need to understand these patterns of behavior and try some other coping skills that are not related to food. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be stressful, but the the mindset is, is there. It's definitely eating disorder. We're like, I keep looking for things to go wrong, so I have a reason to restrict. Sounds just like all my other eating disorder patients. Um, 
And I don't want you stuck in that loop either, right? That's super frustrating. It can feel really exhausting and yeah, disempowering, kind of like we're just on this ride forever. But you can get off of it. We just need to get you some support and try out some new coping skills and find some that work. I know none are as good as the eating disorder, but we'll get you to a place where they can manage the upset and the emotional ride that you're feeling so that we don't have to use other unhealthy things to cope with that. Okay. There was a comment that as an add-on, how can you tell if something is an actual eating disorder? Are you using food to cope? Is food, thoughts of food, getting it, not eating it, whatever, taking up a lot of your brain space, most of your brain space, like over 50%, it's an eating disorder, okay? Um, My daughter is 18 and has had issues with not eating for a few years now, which were compounded with certain ADHD medications that would cause her to lose her appetite. Ooh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I always have a tough time with my patients who have an eating disorder and ADHD. It's a fight. Lately, she's been not eating for a day or longer and says she has no appetite. It's not uncommon uncommon for her to only eat once a day, sometimes twice, and barely drink anything. Uh Ooh, that's very dangerous. A few times, she's gone almost 48 hours without eating or drinking. Her prescribing doctor says that she may have disordered eating, but is this the same as having an eating disorder? She isn't obsessed with weight loss or gain, and she doesn't throw up her meals. She was recently diagnosed with BPD, and her recent medication does have that side effect, but this seems extreme. She's in therapy, but I don't think she's come up. This has come up in her sessions. She did t- try DBT, but dropped out. And I'm not really sure if this is really an eating disorder problem or how to help her fix it. Thanks for all you do. I look forward to your insights each week. Oh, of course, of course. I'm glad I could help. There's a lot at play here. Um, is it an eating disorder? I'm not sure, but it sounds it's it's suspicious. Um, the fact that she has a BPD diagnosis makes me wonder if this is part of it. So there's a component of BPD people don't talk a lot about, but it's like the impulsivity. And my BPD patients tend to kind of go in these like restrict binge kind of cycles. And that can also come along with like shopping and like restricting their spending and then binging on spending. This can also happen when it comes to self-injury. There's a lot of this like impulsivity, black and white, in or out. Now with her not eating um, and not having an appetite because of her medication, I know she's 18, so she's an adult, but I i mean, I push back with my patients if they want to be on that medication to, this sounds terrible, but it's the its the tough love therapist, so just buckle up, okay? When my patients have ADHD and their medication is making them lose their appetite, I have not an ultimatum, but I'm like, I'm going to need you to follow a meal plan. Since you're not hungry, I need you to still eat every three to four hours. I need you to set alarms. I need to let me know how it's going. If this isn't working, then I'm going to have to talk to your psychiatrist because we're going to have to come up with another op- another option for medication because we cannot have this happening. I'd rather have your ADHD symptoms a little elevated and you're eating back to normal because, you know, we have to have a healthy body in order to work on anything else, right? You have to be here. So I push back um, very strongly there. But that's when my patient's like, it is an eating disorder. Now with your daughter, I'm not 100% sure. The disordered eating, the fact that she's like she won't eat or drink really scared the drinking water really scares me she needs to be drinking water she'll give her i mean that's very dangerous for her body um can cause everything from you know i mean organ shutdown heart attack things like that so um i would let the doctor know obviously the prescribing doctor knows um disordered eating is is an eating disorder. It's just like the beginning stages when we first start to notice. People usually call it disordered eating. I've talked about this online over the years, and I don't always love these nuanced terms, but people online do. And 
disordered eating just really means that like maybe you don't quite meet the criteria yet for an eating disorder uh, by the way criteria is kind of bullshit in my mind um it's because it eating disorders are shapeshifters they don't always stay as one so why are you know categorizing them just kind of sometimes feels like an effort and futility but anyways the um the disordered eating is like don't quite meet the criteria but there's definitely some eating disorder behaviors on board and so I, I think that if that's what the prescribing doctor thinks, because he's going to know your daughter more intensely than I am, or more intimately, really, I would say that um, that it is an eating disorder, because to say that there's disordered eating patterns, this makes me really suspicious for that. Um, not everyone with an eating disorder is obsessed with weight loss or gain. Some are, some aren't. Um, majority probably are, but not always, right? And I think with the BPD on board, that's why I wonder if it's kind of part of that, but I don't really know. So I guess overall, I mean, trying DPT and, uh, or DBT group and dropping out is very common. Most of my BPD patients don't like it at first, and it's a lot of work, and they get exhausted. Um, I'd encourage her to maybe try it again if she would. It's awesome that you have a DBT program in your area. Um, I guess the only thing you can do as a parent is show up, support, and check in. And if if you can afford this or if it's within your, you know, your insurance plan, I'd encourage you to see a dietitian, someone who specializes in eating disorders. We don't want a dietitian that's like, I can make you lose weight and just do this and eat X, Y, Z, blah, blah. Ugh, no. Unfortunately, in L.A., it was really hard to find dietitians that didn't do that. So I had like three that I liked. Find a dietitian that is good. Talk to them on the phone. Make sure. And then I'd have your daughter go to that. That would be my encouragement. Because we need to understand her relationship with food and if there is an issue there and a, an appointment with a dietitian and getting a meal plan and stuff like that, that could really help. Um, I know she's 18. She's probably super stubborn. I was that way too, pushing back. The, but the drinking, not drinking water really scares me. Um, let her doctor know this is happening. I know, again, she's 18. So you, all you can really do is support. Tell her you're concerned. Tell her you love her. Uh, be consistent with her because if she does have BPD, that consistency is going to be key. I know she can be all over, but you hang in there um, and we'll try to get her the right support and the right help. There's a lot to unpack there. I hope I didn't miss anything. Um, yeah, what is an eating disorder, disordered eating? I feel like I covered everything, but hang in there. You're doing everything you can. I'm sure even if she can't tell you now, she will appreciate all of this support later. Okay. Another add-on says, most of the time I have therapy, my therapist is asking me if I'm being physically active enough, if I sleep enough, and if I eat and drink enough. She always says that she's glad that I take care of myself after I answer, but I don't feel like I do. I'm just walking every day because that's the only way to get to my work. And I don't even say anything about if I eat or drink enough because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I've also told her before that I sometimes like to not eat because I know it's bad for my body and I find it even funny. I know it isn't. I do that because I want to get attention. I wrote a bit about that in a question a few weeks ago, and I can control it. I just don't want to. And I have no problem eating if someone invites me. I still eat lots of sweets and also get jealous if other people get attention. So this is attention-based. You get attention for their feelings or eating behavior. My question is, would you react the same way as my therapist does? And is it normal and healthy behavior that I'm doing, or should I do something about it? Any other thoughts are very welcome, too. Thank you so much for all you do. It's really important work. Oh, of course. Um... It's interesting. The The eating behaviors for you are because of the need for attention. I don't want you to think needing attention is a bad thing because it's not. It's human behavior. We all need attention. We're wired for it. It's very important. It's part of our development. 
And my guess would be that you didn't get it growing up. There's some attachment stuff going on here. Now, is it BPD? Possibly. Is it not? Possibly. There's definitely some kind of, I don't know if I'd call it anxious attachment. It could be, um, it could be disorganized. I'd have to see how it really plays out. But your need for attention is what I would work on. That would be my focus. That would be what I would want to talk about in therapy. Now, I I don't do those kinds of generic check-ins with my patients. Like, are you getting enough? Are you moving your body? You're exercising? You're eating? I do them. I'm more specific. I ask as we move through things like, hey, part of my homework was, you know, part of the homework from last week was for you to move a little. What kind of movement have you done this week? Or what kind of exercise? Depends on if my patients like the word exercise or not. Um, you know, and I want them to tell me about it. Okay, how'd you feel? You know, did you check out? Were you able to stay present? I have very specific questions when it comes to food. Okay, would you eat how much? When? You know, I have, even if, if I'm worried about their food intake, I'm usually having them use an app like Recovery Record to track it. And I always ask them how much they're lying on it. <laughs> but that's just my style of therapy because I know they're always lying um, because it's hard, right? We feel judged and we worry what it means when we put in certain numbers and things and it's hard. So overall, I would not react the same way as your therapist because I have more questions. I feel like there's more going on, but I don't know if your therapist knows that all of this is going on. So I guess my encouragement for you is to tell your therapist that, you know, you could even say like, hey, I asked a question on this podcast and the feedback was really interesting um, that a lot of the behaviors that I do are things that I find myself doing over and over in order to get attention. And I've, I feel like that must come from childhood stuff. Like, I think you would probably benefit a lot from inner child work. And I'd also be very curious if this is attachment-based or if this is BPD. Where is this coming from? Um, yeah, because I think your therapist checking in and acting calm is, might even be triggering to you and make you want to do more extreme things. I'm not I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing here because I've had patients like that in the past. I don't know if that's you. But sometimes when we're looking for that attention, if they don't give it to us in the way we want, we think we need to do more. And I'm here to tell you, you don't. We just need to speak up more. This kind of passive um, acting in a certain way to hopefully get this response is the way we tr probably tried to survive as a child. But it's not helping us as adults because adults don't act the same way as parents do, you know. And if our parents were neglectful, then your therapist doing this is almost like the same thing happening again. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how kind of how my brain went. Um so speak up, let them know that you think this is where this is coming from in the best way possible, you know, as clear as you can, share that with them, because that will really guide the work. It honestly has nothing to do, I don't think, with like the food or the exercise or any of that. It's more of this need for attention, maybe passive suicidal thoughts, things like that. But we need to know a little bit more about it. And your therapist needs to know how this affects you and the way you think about it. Okay. Another add-on says, hey, Katie, I hope you're having a lovely day. I am. I hope you are too. I wanted to add on to this question as I am in a similar situation. For a period of three years, on and off, I have been heavily restricting my eating in periods of high stress and feeling out of control. However, as these passed, I had always managed to bounce back to normal eating to a certain extent. However, I am now 18 and this disordered eating has never gone away. It keeps coming back on a cycle. And last summer, it was the worst it ever gotten with the restriction and the over-exercising. And it got out of control in my prep for a holiday. And now I can't stop. I'm scared as I know it's negatively affecting my health, but I've never been taken as sick enough. Okay, we'll talk about that. Even though I know this isn't how my body's supposed to look, but this time I can't just bounce back as people have noticed. So it makes me want to stay in this cycle to validate myself. 
I don't know what to do what to do to get out of the cycle because my brain's just wanting me to keep going because I know I have another holiday coming in June. How do I force myself to recover? Because deep down, I want to get better. Thanks so much. You're going to need help. We have a raging eating disorder. That's what's happening. Um, doing it on your own is obviously possible, but it's much, much, much more difficult. So my encouragement is to reach out and start seeing a therapist, start talking to them about what's going on. Again, going back to kind of what I said earlier, we're going to have to find some ways to cope with this stress and this overwhelm that we're experiencing and what's causing us to kind of go back into this eating disorder behavior. We need to have other ways to deal. And we don't have those. So we're using exercise and food. Um, a book that I would encourage you to read is the, um, is it, is her name? It's not Angela Johnson. Her last name's Johnson. I'm forgetting her first name, but it's Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's in my Amazon shop. You can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, and it'll be in there so you can find it easily. Um, it's a great book. It's a great place to start. I encourage you to reach out and get some support. Doing it on your own is really tricky. And we're, it's been going on for quite a little while, right? So we're going to need um, some professional help. And that's why it's there. So reach out, speak up, and it will get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you've ever told a client you loved them. Hmm, good question. I recently said it somewhat impulsively before leaving a session. And she said she cared very much about me, but didn't want to cross her boundaries by saying that she loved me too. Also, we talked about it, and I never meant in love, just that she means a lot to me and has made an impact on my life over the past two years. Just wondered your thoughts on disclosing feeling towards clients. Great question. No, I've never told a client that I love them. Um, and it's not to say that I wouldn't have felt that kind of way. It's just different. It's hard to explain. Um, but not loving a client doesn't mean you don't care. Okay. Now, in my mind, when I read this question, when I was putting it in this doc to get ready for today, I was like, ooh, I'd have so many follow-ups for you. I would be curious about what it would mean if I did say I loved you and what the, you know, what uh, prompted you to tell me that. Have you ever had times in your life growing up where you didn't feel loved? You didn't feel like the love was reciprocated or did you ever feel neglected emotionally? Oh, I'd have so many questions. And that's really because therapy, the relationship in therapy usually shows us almost like putting a spotlight on other patterns and other situations in our life that have caused us harm or upset you know at that time or are still doing it right it just highlights these patterns and they come up in these ways like oh i want my therapist to hug me i want them to say they love me i want them to show up for me at this event or whatever because we can place our therapist so easily into parent role we're like, oh, my parents sucked and they were never there. Boom, I'm going to put my therapist there and then they can do all the things that I wish my parent did. Makes sense. Totally get it. But that's where the therapy starts, where you're like, oh, because you can't just put your therapist in that role. We have to figure out how to heal younger you during that time because putting a therapist in that role is never, it's never going to fit. You're putting a therapist into a parent hole and that two different types of people, two different things, two different relationships, two different everything, right? So it just won't work. But it makes sense why we want to do that. And it's important to talk about it and to understand attachment, understand childhood wounds and some of that inner child work and what those urges that we feel are. Because there's nothing wrong with this. I don't want anybody to feel judged or to feel like it's not okay to have these kinds of thoughts and feelings. It's incredibly common. I would say probably like 70% of my patients over the years, maybe even more, probably because I do a lot of BPD eating sort of work. But 
so many of my patients over the years have that urge and want to do that. Now, um, that impulsivity is also interesting to me. And I, I would just be really curious about where this came from for you. And I respect your therapist about not wanting to cross boundaries um, because I have no problem. And I've told tons of my patients over the years how, how much I care for them, that I care for them. Or I'll even say things because it's true. You know, I was thinking about you and I grabbed this book and I think we can should work on this together. Or I was reading this article and you came to mind because that's how therapists work. We're doing stuff all the time to try to better ourselves. And we have these patients with these different issues that we're working on. And when something feels like it could plug in, I'm going to think of them. And I let them know that because I think that's also kind of healing to have this consistent relationship where they feel cared for and thought of in between sessions. It could also be kind of triggering and that's helpful too, right? Then we can work on that as well. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I would never tell a client that I love them because I, do, I would not want to feed into that urge to put the therapist in that void or that hole or that wound to try to repair that old wound. I don't, I'm not the repairer of that old wound. My patients are. I know that's a shitty answer, but it's the truth. I will arm you with the hydrogen peroxide and the neosporin and the Band-Aid to help you heal that wound and clean that wound, but I can't do it. And so that's why I always try to stay away from things like that so that I don't confuse my patients or cause, a, I guess confusion is probably the best word. Like I don't want to cause any discomfort or dysregulation or any assumptions that, you know, that I don't want to, I don't want to push them into that. I want them to know that they can do it on their own and I want it to be healing and I don't want to get in the way of that. There was a comment that said, just an add on, my therapist started saying to me that she cares a lot about me and that I'm very important to her. Also at Christmas, she wished me a Merry Christmas over text and ended with a heart emoji. Oh, that's very sweet. I know, or I never know how to react because I don't do feelings, Ooh. especially telling someone how much they mean to me. I hope you're okay, as always, sending a hug your way. Oh, thank you, sending a hug back. Now, I mean, I would talk to them about this to say that like, you know, you appreciate these gestures, but you don't know how to react because feelings are difficult because that really, in this short comment, you let me know that that's where your therapy should go, is into navigation and understanding, if not just identification of feelings. Most people have a tough time with feelings, I'll be honest. Most of us are not emotionally intelligent because nobody showed us how. Our, our parents, maybe teachers and friends, showed us how to stuff them real deep. So we know that really well. But when someone shows us care and love and support, what do we do with that? We don't know, right? And it's okay to not know. I would let your therapist know that, you know, I really appreciate all the support and all the kindness. I don't know what to do with feelings. So I don't even know how to react. It's like so weird. And you can even say, I just, I almost feel uh, like frozen. And then I feel stupid or whatever comes up for you. I'm not saying that you're stupid. I'm just saying sometimes that can cause these feelings. We're like, what's wrong with me? Oh my God, why can't I just do this? Right? We can have all this judgment, but it's just important to share that so that then we can work toward more understanding of feelings, navigation of it managing the kind of who that comes along with it and feelings wheels could come into play journaling all that good stuff little by little we'll get in there where you can start to be able to do feelings as you said but take your time okay okay final question question number seven says hey katie how much of a plan is your therapist supposed to have for you? This is a great question. Something I find frustrating lately about therapy is that after several months, it doesn't seem to be building on itself. Ugh. I, I hate that. I would see, personally, I would see another therapist. It feels as if I keep putting in all this difficult emotional labor to finally figure out how to say certain things. And then I say them and my therapist reacts great when she hears them. 
But then it seems as if something should follow from this disclosures. Yet in the next session, we just go back to, well, what do you want to work on this week? As if last week never happened. It feels like I'm doing this hard work and nothing ever comes of it. And I get almost like postpartum depression about it. What is my responsibility and what is her responsibility as far as creating some kind of continuity between sessions? Thanks for all your help and advice. Of course, this is a great question. Now, I hear that from a lot of people and I'm just going to be rough because this is, these are my honest thoughts. That's lazy therapisting. Doesn't mean your therapist is bad. Doesn't mean they couldn't be better. They're just being lazy. That's not doing our job. Period. I'd like to be kinder, but I honestly just can't. It's just so frustrating. Now, not every session is going to build on the other. Sometimes there's detours and pivots and we have a stressor, right? But I mean, I'll be honest with my patients when I feel like it's like crisis after crisis, I'll draw attention to that and I'll say, you know, I feel like we're just doing crisis management here and we're not able to do any extra work. Are you able to maybe do an extra session or do we want to extend our sessions? Or do you want to spend every other session addressing these crises and the others ignoring them? You know, we have options, but I would draw attention to it. Now, not all therapists work on very detailed and specific treatment plans. That's okay. All types of therapists exist. There's different types of treatment modalities, but they all have certain steps or modules or things that we're supposed to be working through, or at the very least, building on top of one another, meaning we're moving through things. Referencing last week, saying things like, you know, last week you came in, you're talking about blah, blah, blah. And I feel like this is playing out again today in here, you know? And then offering some tools or techniques so that it doesn't continue to keep happening, you know? I find that so frustrating. And so the plan that your therapist should have is essentially in the first few sessions that you meet with them, let's say like two or three, but usually I do it in like the first or second. What are your goals? And a lot of times when you ask patients that, they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, what would have to happen for you to be like, you know what? I don't need therapy anymore. And that's when they usually come alive. And they're like, oh, I wouldn't be crying at work or I wouldn't feel super stressed or I'd be sleeping better or my depressive thoughts would be gone or my relationships would improve, you know, whatever it might be. So I ask them, you know, what would that look like? We write some of those things down. And I say, okay, um, what would be the ultimate goal? You know, I think this one sounds like a big goal. Do you agree? And we start parsing them because there's going to be like shorter term goals in there. Like, oh, um, I'll be able to sleep at night. Like I can put that in the middle, right? And then if they're like, oh, my relationships could improve or I'd be better at communication, I can put that down as like a more of a shorter term goal. We can try some tools and techniques in the next few weeks and see how that goes, right? So we're going to build this kind of ladder of like, shorter term goals, longer term goals, ultimate goal of I don't need therapy anymore or whatever. Um, you should at least have something like that going. Period. Now, I'm more of a treatment planner. I like to, maybe it's just the way I am. I'm very organized type A structured type of person. So on each of those goals, I'll have sub goals. I'll talk with you about them. Um, and at the very least, even if my patients aren't super specific and we don't have a ton of goals, I might it, like have my own that I'm kind of working off of and I'll say to them, hey, I think this might be a good place for us to go with this. What do you think? And see if they agree or disagree. So your therapist should have a plan. It doesn't mean it has to be completely structured like I prefer. Um, also, it depends on the patient. Some patients don't like a ton of structure, might just want to have like a goal. And then when that's achieved, we move on to the next. That's fair too. But they have to have something and you should feel like it's building. 
Um, otherwise, it's lazy therapist stuff. I feel like us just showing up. What do you want to work on this week? Uh, no, 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 no. Not that that's a bad question, but again, I feel like it's such a fucking lazy question. I would always, I always have a way that I want therapy to go. And not every session, but overall, again, having these bigger goals. But usually before a patient comes in, I've looked at their chart. I've looked at the homework of what we talked about. And I have some ideas of where I think we should be moving. Now, does that mean that it's going to go there? No, I don't have control over my patients. But my questions when they come in, usually I'll say, okay, how'd the homework go? That's my first, almost my first question out of my mouth. Unless I knew they were on vacation or they had an event, then I'm going to check in on that first. So we're going to address like what's going on now, homework from last week, and then we'll get into the next step of things. Now, obviously, things that went on, let's say they had like a family wedding and shit got crazy and got in a fight with so-and-so, that might take up the whole session. We might not even get to that homework, but you best believe I'm highlighting that and we're bringing that up next week. I'm not letting the crisis get derail our, our process. It might put it off for a little bit, but we'll get around to it and I will not forget. And I think that that's important. I think that's important when it comes to our work in therapy. Otherwise, it feels like we're just going to vent about current events when, yes, the current is important, but it's usually like, is it, I don't know what the word is, like kind of built on from the past or predicated, is that the right word? From the past, like things are building in our life to lead us up to why we keep having these same kinds of struggles now. I can speak personally to that and professionally. It sucks, but it's the truth. And if we never like talk through these patterns and acknowledge them and change them, we'll keep doing them. And yes, I know there's different styles of therapy, but this whole like, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to work on? What are, isn't that your job? That would be my response. But again, I probably would see another therapist. You could mention to your therapist, hey, I just feel like I'm doing all this work and you know, we don't really have a plan. Could we put together a treatment plan? You can ask them. Say, I was reading about things. It seems like, you know, there are treatment plans. Could we work on that? It's okay to ask if they're like, oh, I don't like to do that. Then it's up to you to decide, are you fine with this like loosey-goosey style of therapy that they're doing? Or do you need more structure? Because everybody's different. And that's okay. I just think that's really lazy. It just frustrates me. I'm sorry. Um, because I feel like it's not your responsibility to come up with your therapy plan. That's why you're seeing a therapist. That's like, most of my job is figuring out like you help me identify a goal and then my job's like working backwards from that how do we get there and then I try to guide you slowly to that point okay anyway there was a comment on this and it says as an add-on is it my responsibility to bring things up again that we discussed in an early session to work on some more not necessarily but it if they haven't gotten around to it, it is okay to bring it up, but that's not like, I don't want to say that's your responsibility. It says, for example, I told my therapist recently about bullying in childhood, which seems to be the root of a lot of my social anxiety. Is it my responsibility to bring this up again in a later session? Because I think if I don't bring it up again, we won't work on it again. Since like in the original question, there often seems to be a lack of continuity. Bring it up again. This will be us giving them another opportunity to address something and to say it like you said it to me. Be like, I feel like this is the root of my social anxiety. I'd really like to talk about this. I know we brought it up again. Can you like put a pin in this or highlight it so we ensure that we come back to it? It's okay to say that to your therapist. They might say, oh, because sometimes, I mean, we're human too, right? Maybe we just didn't think it was as big of a deal as it was to you. Maybe because unfortunately, when things are traumatizing and upsetting, we as people like to minimize or invalidate ourselves. We might have talked down to it and then moved on. But 
and they might have been a little tired or maybe they just, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. I'm not condoning the behavior. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying that it's okay to bring it up again. We'll give them another chance to keep things going in kind of a continuous fashion. So it feels like we're moving along. Let them know that you're you're wanting that and give them an opportunity to rise to the occasion. Okay. Another add-on says, the problem for me too is that it's not hard for this unrealistic sense of I'm doing so much work and you don't even care enough to follow up to feed directly into my fear of abandonment brain, which then moves on to I'm just a job to you and you don't really want me here. You're going to leave, which I know isn't rational, but that knowledge doesn't help keep it from happening. How do I address that? Bring that up with your therapist because there's going to be a lot of tools. I mean, I automatically jump into DBT because I'm like, oh, that kind of abandonment stuff. Um, we're going to have to use some of our techniques and tools and DBT is going to be great for that. Things like, I mean, first of all, again, let your therapist know this is coming up and this is how your brain works and just tell them, um, I'm assuming you can identify another place where this has taken place. Maybe not. You can just say like, it's happening here and I'm sure it's happening in other places. I do this and my brain goes up, 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 just like you told me. Feeds right into this. I'd like to know how to better manage it. Now, the DBT therapist in me is like, I want you to, I'm trying to think of what the best part of me feels like checking your facts could be helpful, but you might be too emotional. I don't know if we need some distractions to kind of bring our emotions down because I don't know if this is like emotion dysregulation. So we need to take care of those basic needs. We need to find other ways to cope. You'd have to kind of let me know, but I, I really would encourage you to tell your therapist about this and say, you know, I was looking online or I was talking to this therapist that has a, a podcast and she was mentioning some DBT techniques that could be helpful. I guess I just, I'm not sure because you're not my patient, right? I'm not sure where you are in that kind of, if we need more mindfulness stuff, because we don't even know this just like hits and we have no idea it's coming. Or if it's more like, oh, I can feel it coming and I don't know how to regulate. And then it's here and I feel, you know, because in DBT, there's like kind of, I mean, different pillars, but also kind of different steps that we kind of move through. Like we move from mindfulness to kind of those emotion regulation things, right? And we can, I mean, everything kind of spans it because it even gets into like interpersonal effectiveness, right? This is a relationship. We need to communicate. But my encouragement, I guess, for you would be for right now to tell your therapist this is happening and to tell them that you want to work on some tools and techniques to better manage it because you feel like your brain kind of runs away with it. And I think DBT could be helpful. Um yeah, because you know, you said you know it isn't rational, but it doesn't keep it from happening. And so, yeah, part of me thinks we need some distractions. We need some other coping skills. We need to check our facts. Um, hmm. Yeah, but bring it up to your therapist because, again, I don't want to jump out of line of what they might want to work on. But I think I would definitely push you towards some of those DBT techniques. And I have a great, there's a great workbook that I've used over the years and it's in my Amazon shop, just amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. And it's a work, it's like worksheets. It's a workbook. It's green. It's McKay and somebody else are the authors. It's great to pick up if you want to work with your therapist. They can copy some of those sheets for you and you can fill them out. But it can help you kind of, again, get that mindfulness component where you can feel this building or like feel the triggers, like identify some of the triggers. And then what can we do to regulate? Can we is it taking care of basic needs? Is it checking our facts? Is it distracting with other things? You know, what is it that we're doing? Um, but we have to find a way to get us out of that emotion mind and back into that wise mind. And the the number of things that and tools that are in DBT is endless. So make sure you spend your time really digging into them and finding ones that work for you. Because, yeah, there's a ton. 
Okay. Final add-on says, yes, I even told my therapist the other week that maybe I'm just bad at therapy because I don't know if we're supposed to keep going from our last session or if when she says at the start of a new session, what would you like to talk to today? I have failed if I want to continue where we left off last time. No, you have not failed. Is she expecting each issue to be solved within the 90 minutes that we've got together each week? I hope not. She just looked at me funny and asked me if I wanted to talk about what we talked about last week or did I want to talk about something else? It confuses me. Sometimes at the end of session, we agree to continue with a specific topic in our next session. But it throws me when she then asks, what would you like to talk about today? Did she forget that we what we agreed on? Or is she prompting me to speak up for myself? I'm often too shy to say that I'd like to continue where we left off. Ugh, yeah. Um, it depends. Sometimes we will have patients try to advocate for themselves. That that's a, a thing that we're working on, wanting you to speak up and wanting you to, you to be more direct. I might encourage you to do it. So I might say something like, you know, but I would probably prompt you more softly. Like we talked about something last week and you said you wanted to continue. Will you tell me what you'd like to speak about today? So I'd kind of like cue you up. And then I'd say, so that's what you want. I would like prompt you along the way to get you to a place where you can be more boisterous or advocate for yourself a little more strongly um, until, you know, we're kind of building up to that. So I might do it that way if that was something that we were working on, that we were in agreement was a goal. Um, No, no therapist is going to expect any issue to be resolved within a 90 minute session. It's helpful and things should be moving forward, but no. So don't worry about that. Um, It is kind of confusing. If you feel able, I know you said you're too shy to say, I don't know if you can write it down or email in between sessions. I don't know what they allow, but let them know that this is confusing and that you'd like to can in whatever language. Something that I would encourage you to say is to say, I would like if for the most part our sessions build on each other. I'll let you know if I have a current crisis or issue I need to talk about, but I, I really prefer things to kind of build. It makes me feel good, like we're moving toward my goals and things are going to get better. It's really, you know... Um, not just validating, but it, it like feels good, right? It's it's what we want out of therapy. And I would let them know that. And that's not a mean thing. We're not being abrasive. We're just saying, this is something that I would like. And it helps me feel motivated and good, like things are going forward. And so I'll just know that you can count on me to speak up if I have a crisis or something that I need to talk about, because that might be what she's leaving space for, right? But I just don't like the, what would you like to talk about today question, because don't you have like, you know, if we had said at the session before we were going to talk about X, Y, or Z, at the beginning of the session, I'd say, you know, last session we agreed to talk about this. I just want to check in. How are you doing? Anything come up this week that you want to address first before we jump right in? I'll say stuff like that. And then usually my patients like, you know, either tell me, oh my God, I saw my dad. It was terrible. Or let's just jump right in and we'll go for it from there. But maybe your therapist is a little softer because you are a little shy. So let's give her an opportunity to rise to the occasion. Let her know um, in one way or another, whether we write it down and read it, hand it to her, email, text, however we can get that across, that we just would like things to keep building because it helps keep us motivated. Then make it about you and like what you're wanting out of therapy. Um, and that will help continue to, you know, get things going in the right direction. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for just being such a wonderful community. I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you next time. Bye.